It's been a, it's been a, a good couple weeks. We've been talking about different things that we're saved into or saved for. Uh, a number of weeks back, I talked about how we're saved to serve, um, how we're saved in order that we might serve. And this week, I want to talk about how we're saved not just to serve, not just to, to participate in the life of the church, but to sing. Uh, and, and some of you are excited about that, and, and I think some of the men are like, wait, no. No, I was not saved to sing. I was saved to do anything but sing. I will play the drums, I will clean a bathroom, but I will not sing. But we were saved, and in fact we were made to sing. So we're going to stand together and read Psalm 113. Psalm 113. We'll read it together, it's nine verses, not that bad. Read it out loud. We'll hear one another say this psalm. We won't sing it this time, although I did look it up. There is, a, anyways, we'll get there. Um, let's, let's read this together. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of the people. He gives the barren woman at home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of our praise. God, you are worthy of our praise. Just who you are is worthy of our praise. Your greatness, your might, your unique otherness, your holiness, the fact that you are not just bigger and better and the nth degree, but you are completely in a category all your own. It is God and then it is everything else and for that you are worthy of our praise. And at the same time, God, we recognize that you are good, that you've been good to us. You've stooped down You've condescended to our level. You've expressed love and patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, mercy to us. You are worthy of our praise. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would raise our vision to see how great you are that we would not be so myopic in our view that we are not able to open our eyes to see the, the vastness of your greatness. God, I pray that as we think about creation, we think about how great and big and unfathomable creation is, Lord, that it would cause us to, to draw comparisons to your own greatness, your own searchable greatness. Holy Spirit, at the same time, I pray that you would help us to, to see and appreciate your tender, loving kindness. 
that this God who is so great, so transcendent, so mighty, has chosen to come close, to speak softly, to show his care. God, we, we pray, I pray that your word would do what only your word can do, that your spirit would do what only he can do, that you would raise our affections, raise our appreciation, raise our love to the place where we, we see and are in awe of your awesomeness and we see and are, are softened by your love. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Psalm 113 falls within a number of psalms called the Egyptian Hallel. Now, at Passover time, the, the Jews would read some of these psalms, or actually they'd sing some of these psalms at the beginning and some at the end of the meal. And, and these psalms were supposed to kind of orient them around the work of Christ. Or not the work of Christ, the work of God in, in, in salvation during Passover. So Psalm 113 and 114 would be read or sung before the meal. And then 15 through 18 would be read after the meal. And, and they would reflect on what God had done through the Passover. And if you're not familiar with the story, we had the, the people of God whom God had called out Uh, Abraham had had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had had many sons. If you're familiar with the song, you you immediately went into the, anyways, uh, that was Abraham. But anyways, uh, and, and the 12 tribes lived in Egypt until a time when they were oppressed by the Egyptian pharaoh. And in that time, they, they called out to God ask for his salvation, for his redemption. And God provides that redemption through the leadership of Moses. And Moses brings them out. We have the Exodus. He brings them out. He delivers his people. And the night of of his deliverance is called the night of the Passover because the angel of death passes over the households that are marked by the blood of a lamb. And so, fast forward to Jesus' time and and they would remember this moment. And it's called the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, Egyptian because they were coming out of Egypt. And Hallel, which is the word means praise. Because they would remember what God had done. And I think this is significant for us. Because although we're not necessarily celebrating Passover. We celebrate the salvation of our Lord. And, and this text speaks to the fact that he is worthy of our praise. So we have three, three things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the invitation to praise the Lord. We're going to talk about the reason that we ought to praise the Lord. He is great. And then we're going to talk about the second reason that he is worthy of our praise because he is good. Our invitation to praise the Lord. The first reason that he is great and the second reason because he is good. So if you look, look with me at... at Verse 1, it says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Who does the psalmist invite to praise but the servants of the Lord? He says, praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. If you're in this house and you're, you're following Jesus Christ, you are a servant of the Lord. We're called a lot of things. We're called sons and daughters. We're called the redeemed. We're called the free. But we are the servants of the Lord. 
And I think that sometimes we want to buck against that and say, well, I'll be a lot of things, but I'm not going to be God's servant. I'm no one's servant. But it is good to be a servant of the Lord. In Psalm 84, the sons of Korah reflect on, on what it looks like to serve the Lord and what a, what a privilege it is. And, and they, they write this. They say, for a day in your courts, in other words, a day serving in the temple courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of Mike. I'd rather be an usher. I'd rather be opening the door for people as they come in and go out than anywhere else, than dwell in the, twel- the, the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed, are the, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You see, the sons of Korah understood, at this point, they understood that God was worthy to be served. God is worthy to be served. He invites us as servants of the Lord to serve him. What, is, what are his servants to praise? Right? There's a command, praise what? Praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. It's interesting, if you look at this text, it's interesting that in the first three verses, he mentions not just the Lord, right? Praise God, praise, praise uh, the Lord, but he says, praise the name of the Lord. And, and it's important that you pay attention to what he's saying, right? God has a lot of different names that, that are used, and, and sometimes we don't really connect with that. You know, in Western culture, for the most part, names are, names are what we call people, you know, my last name is Barnes. That has nothing to do with my occupation, nor my father's occupation, nor his father's occupation. I don't know if we've ever owned a barn. <laughs> and I don't know where the extra E came from. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's something completely different. Um, you know, there might be some Coopers in here, and I don't think you work with shoes. Smiths, I don't think anyone's swinging a hammer. It's not something that we really connect with. But for, for the Israelites, a name was significant. What is the significance of the name? Well, in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 17, we see that Abraham is this guy that God calls out of, out of uh, his pagan idolatry, and, and, and he is sent to become really the people of God. And he takes him from being called Abram, which means exalted father, and he gives him a new name, Abraham, which means father of multitudes. God renames him, and that renaming speaks to the purpose for which he has been saved and and redeemed. Jacob, uh, who is the son of Isaac, one of the sons of Isaac, comes out, and literally you have these twins, and and, I mean, moms, you've been here, but you have one kid that comes out. And then somehow you have the other kid who's still got his hand on the foot of the first kid. I mean, that's got to be a very unique situation for that midwife. I don't know what they're thinking. It's really odd. And they name him Jacob, which means he takes the heel or he usurps or he cheats. Because there was something about his nature and personhood that was expressed in this moment that they wanted to capture in the name. And so they name him Jacob, and it's not really a great name, right? What's your name? Uh, cheater, right? You go to kindergarten class, a cheater, stinker, you know, firstborn awesome kid. I'm like, okay, we see. we see who the favorites are. But we also see that later on, 
Jacob, who, who ends up being a cheater and a liar, he has this moment where he wrestles with God. And in Genesis chapter 20, uh, 32, we see this moment where he actually wrestles with God. How that works, why he wins, I don't know. I mean, God, probably in the same way that a dad would wrestle with his kid, and at some point he might just say, you win. But in this moment, Jacob wrestles with the Lord, and, and the Lord says, let go. And Jacob says, bless me. And so it's interesting that Jacob uh, asks for a blessing, and what does God do but say, what's your name? Because up to this point, he had lied and cheated and lied about his name, and, but he's honest in this moment and says, my name's Jacob. He acknowledges who he is, and God puts his hip out and gives him a new name, Israel, which means wrestles with God, because he had wrestled with God. For each of the examples, the person's name reflects the nature and the character of that person. When the psalmist calls us to worship the name of the Lord, he's calling us to recognize all that makes God God. Worship the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? He is mighty. He is strong. He is holy. He, he has control. He, he is faithful. There are so many things encapsulated in who God is. And, and the psalmist wants to draw our attention to the nature of who he is. This is not just some sort of uh, pop song that you hear on 91.9 and you're saying, oh, praise God because he's good. And we're not really thinking about what the word G-O-D represents. No, he's saying you need to think about what this name represents. He wants us to remember who God is. And, and he doesn't just say, you know, praise the name of God. He says, praise the name of the Lord. And in most Bibles, that, that word L-O-R-D there, it is in small caps. So it's all caps, caps letter, although the L is a little bit bigger than the O-R-D. And that's, that's shorthand for this name Yahweh. Or if you went to, you know, Baptist school in the 80s and before that, it was Jehovah. But this was the name that God used in relationship to his covenant people. It was the name that, that God gave Moses when Moses said, okay, you're sending me to go talk to the Israelites and convince them to come with me out uh, into the wilderness and I have to talk to Pharaoh. Who am I going to tell these elders has sent me, right? What, what am I going to say when they said, who is this God that has sent you? And he says, tell them I am who I am. In, 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 the, in the Hebrew, that's reflected in this name Yahweh, the God who is, the God who will be who he will be, the God who is consistent, but not just consistent, not just as though, you know, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but that's a good thing, but the fact is, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he is covenanted with us. He has chosen he had chosen, this is going to be my people. So you know what? That people will be his people in the future. That people will be his people forevermore. When God makes a promise to us because he is Yahweh, because he is who he is, because he will be who he will be, when he makes that promise, he holds true to that promise. He is faithful. The God who was saving God is a saving God. In Hebrews chapter 13 we hear the New Testament version of this reality. It says, reflecting on Jesus, which that's pretty much all that Hebrews does. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, 
today, and forever. This is Yahweh. This is the God who we worship. He's always going to be who he always has been. This is the same God who judges the Egyptians with the ten plagues, who sets the Israelites free, who gives Moses the law, who parts the Red Sea and eventually leads the people of God into the promised land. This is Yahweh. And the psalmist is inviting us to praise the God who has shown himself to be faithful. God has, he's shown himself to be faithful. And family, I don't want you to miss the fact that this is intended for you. The word says that, that these things were written for our example and encouragement. Why? Because the same God to whom the psalmist writes is, is the same God who is in your life. And the same God who was faithful to Moses and now who is promising to be faithful to the psalmist is going to be faithful to you. Because he is still Yahweh. He's still the Lord. And he's still worthy of praise because he is still faithful. He's worthy of praise. A God like this deserves our worship at all times and in all places. He says, blessed be the name of of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Is there ever a time where it's not appropriate to worship God? And we're all like, no, Pastor Eddie. <sighs> but then tomorrow morning, you're going to be in the shower and you're going to be thinking about like lunch. That's okay. Like I, I recognize that, that we all, we live in this reality where I think, I think many of us would, would honestly acknowledge I am supposed to worship God. And, and, and if you're not in that camp, that's fine. You, can, you don't have to be in that camp right now. But, but I'm speaking to the, the self-professed Christians where, yes, it's Sunday. I put on you know, a shirt that is less wrinkled than the other shirts, and I, I put on a smile on my face. I, I, I have a mint in my mouth, and I'm smiling at people. I'm trying to be kind. And I, I, I sang songs, or I, I lip-synced songs so that my... Neighbors could not tell that I was not singing. I am trying to show God that he is worthy of praise. But we all have Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when the day rolls in and we realize there are a lot of things that encroach upon our attention, our focus, our desires, our, our interests. And the psalmist wants to remind us that the Lord is worthy of our blessing, of our praise now and always. And, and this is not, I don't think that what he's saying is, is that we should uh, just kind of get, get our, you know, our worship music going and just turn it on and at work just be singing songs of worship and, and just, hey, Bill, you know, I'm singing, you know, worshiping, and acting weird or strange. But I think there's a disposition of our life where all that we do is in praise and glory to God. That when we go and we, we fill out our timesheet, right? We're doing so to the praise and glory of God. When we're having that, that loving conversation with our spouse, we are trying to do so in a way that honors the nature and character of God to the praise and glory of God. When we're paying our bills and we're wondering why it costs so much, we're doing so to express integrity to the praise and glory of God. When is he worthy of praise? Always. You know, if I had, I wish I did, if I had a brick of gold, right, right here, it would be worth a lot of money. And if that brick of gold sat there and I went home 
and it sat there, no one stole it, it would still be worth what? A lot of money. And if that brick of gold sat there, and I died, I got old and died, my kids grew up, they got old, you know what? It would still be worth a lot of money because of the intrinsic nature and character of gold, because of its purity, because of its non-corrosiveness, because of what makes gold gold. It's always worth something. It's always worth something. God is always worth our praise. He's always strong. He's always sovereign. He's always powerful. He's always Yahweh. Okay, if we know what, where or when, when God should be praised, the next question is where. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. You know, I, I love going down to the Outer Banks, and if you go uh, in... In some parts, it's, it's kind of wide, so it's hard to do this, but if you go to Duck, um, yeah, you can stand in the middle of, of the Outer Banks, you know, maybe just go to one of the houses where it's really high, um, don't break in, nobody likes that, but you can look, and you can see the west, and you can see the east, and you can see both the shore and, and the sound, and, and, it's, and it's amazing. And you've got a great view, whether it's early morning or, or the end of the day, right? You've got a setting, a setting and a rising. And whether you're on the eastern side and it's five in the morning and you're seeing the sun crest over the, the horizon, God is worthy of, to be praised. Or if you walk a few miles to the west side at, at, at six o'clock at night and you see the sun setting and you look at the horizon and, and the water uh, reflecting the, the reds and the oranges and and the yellows and the pinks, what God is worthy of being praised there. And if I were to take an airplane and fly to Hawaii, the sun would touch there as well and God would be worthy of being praised there. And if I were to keep going 24 hours and and land in Beijing, China, you know what would happen? The sun would touch there and God would be worthy of praise there. From the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He is God over Europe because the sun goes over Europe. He is God over Asia. He is God over Africa. He is, he's God over the Antarctic. He's God over all the world. But the real question that we need to answer is why should we praise him? We've talked about some of the, the realities of who he is, his nature and his character. But what, is, what else does the psalmist tell us? Verse 4, the Lord is high above the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord who is seated on high, who, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? One of the reasons that we praise God is because he is great. I struggle with that truth. You don't have to say yes, but do you struggle with that truth? If you were in middle school, you'd be like, yeah. Because middle schoolers struggle with rhetorical questions. Um, we, we struggle with that reality. Because we, our, our world invites us to have this kind of narrow vision. I mean, this so much gives us such a narrow, you know, the, what is my life? What is my calendar? What, who texted me? What are my emails? Who has sent me something on Slack? What, what's the latest thing on social media? There's so much that, that does this to our focus. 
that sometimes it's really important that we try to explicitly open up our, our focus. He says, the Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. You know, when I was a kid, I, I don't remember exactly where it was. I lived in Alabama for a long period of time, well, for about six years, so at the time it was a long period of time, and my grandfather would work uh, in a machine shop, and he'd, he'd fix things, but one of the things he worked on were uh, small prop airplanes. And I remember going up in a small prop airplane with him, and this was probably one of the first kind of flights that I could remember. We went to Korea a long time ago when I was a baby. Don't remember that. There are great pictures. I was super cute. But this was the first moment. <laughs> this was the first moment that I, I kind of remembered what it was like being in the air. And I remember it being really loud and my, my grandfather next to me. And, and I remember looking down and seeing farmland that just looked like quilt work. And it just, it was a completely different perspective you know, what was once really big and vast and really something that I couldn't get my mind across. If I, as a six-year-old, were standing at the edge of a cornfield, I might not be able to see where it ended. I'd look and I'd see there's corn, there's corn, there's corn. It's above me. It's all over. But all of a sudden, up in the sky, I realize it's, it's about a two-by-two-inch square. And may, maybe you've, you've seen something similar. You've, you've gone on a domestic trip and you see buildings turn into specks. You see plots of land turn into patchwork. You see rivers turn into blue threads, right? You see, you see cars and trucks turn into ants. That's fun. You see people just disappear. The higher you get, the smaller the world you know seems, Listen, having thought about that, to what the psalmist says. The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory above the heavens. For God, when he looks down, he sees the nations and sees a patchwork. He sees Russia and he thinks, well, that's small. Right? He, the United States of America. And he says, oh, well, that's a weird shaped square. He looks at the nations and he, he just is not impressed. His glory is high above the heavens. When you have to look down at the heavens, you're up pretty far. Who, who's, the like, who's like the Lord our God who is seated high above? Who looks far down? He looks far down on what? The heavens. I remember going to Chicago and going to, I don't know what it's called now, but it was, it's the Sears Tower. Anyone? Like the Charles? I don't remember. It's something. It's a tall building. It's fairly tall. Not the tallest, but it's tall enough for me. I like the ground. The ground is good height. This is fine for me. I can handle this. I can hop down. I'm not going to hurt myself. Much higher than this. I'm like, well, that's okay. But I went to the Sears Tower because, I don't know, that's what you do in Chicago, apparently. And I remember stepping out. They have not just windows, but extended like room windows. If you don't know about this, they have, it's like a plexiglass cube. And it's like, go step to your death, but not really. And some people are like, oh, this is cool. I literally, you know, my friends, this was for like a youth retreat, so these youth leaders and, and me, and, and so I was like, this is the wall. <laughs> I was like, everything, I, I'm a, I was a computer scientist, like I understand how physics works, there's already two guys. There's no sounds. I know that I'm, that's not going to break, but everything in my soul is like, no, it's going to break and you're going to die. You're going to die. You better hold on tight. You're going to get sucked out into the abyss. And so I, I, I was looking 
And, and I was in awe of, of what? Like 80 stories. I was overwhelmed by 80 stories, 90 stories. And here God is. Who is like the Lord, seated high, who looks down, far down, on the heavens and the earth? In my driveway, I have a driveway, which is nice. Um, I've not always had a driveway. We lived in a townhouse for a long time, and you just have like a, a parking spot that you fight over. <laughs> some, some of you who live in countryside, you know all too well what I'm talking about. Um, you don't fight over, but you make sure that you get your spot. Um, <laughs> but now we have a driveway, and there's asphalt, and right along the edge where it meets um, our front porch area, there's, there's brick. And this is the spot, for whatever reason, that the ants were like, yes, this is it. This is our home. This is where we live. So I've got like four or five little ant hills where they're just faithfully just kind of doing whatever ants do. I don't know. I just see the coming and going. They don't talk to me about their schedule, but they're very busy, <laughs> and they're doing things. Um, and they're, they're completely oblivious to my presence, unless I kind of you know, poke at them or something. Or, then they become very aware of my presence. And, and, and I fear that, that a lot of times when we think about God, we are, we're actually thinking really in terms of, our own existence, our anthill, you know, I've got these things to do, I've got to carry this food in, and like, okay, well, there's this weird guy up in the sky, and okay, we're going to keep moving, I'm going to build my thing, and God's just watching and kind of amused at, at me being an ant. The Lord is high above the nations. Imagine how vast the world is with its princes and presidents and prime ministers and, and think of all the, the, the dictators and, and the despots and, and all the people that, that claim to have power and strength and ability. And there God is sitting over all of them, looking down at them like ant hills. The Lord is so high that he has stooped down to reach the heavens. He's great. He's mighty. He's strong. Now if that was it, I think that we would have the right to be in awe, but I don't know that we would necessarily be happy or be compelled to praise, right? Because if, if I were to have a conversation with those ants, they would not necessarily be pleased with me because, in fact, I have taken a, a power washer and ruined their lives, just ruined them because I'm not a nice guy as it relates to ants. I'm not benevolent not kind, I'm not long-suffering or faithful to these ants. I just want them to die. <laughs> or to live somewhere else. Either one's fine with me, they can decide. And God is great. But if that was where the period fell, we had reason to be concerned. But he goes on and he says, who is like the Lord who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Why does he look far down on the heavens and the earth. He goes on in verse seven and he says, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with prince, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home and makes her joyous, the joyous mother of children. He stoops down not to destroy the anthill, but to lift up the lowly. This is the goodness of God. 
Right? This is the gospel. The gospel isn't just like, hey, you know, uh, don't, get, don't go to hell, go to heaven. You know, trust God and, 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 and maybe you'll have a, a good life in the future. Or trust God and, and maybe you'll have a good life now. No, the gospel is that God who is holy and just and mighty and powerful, who looms powerfully over us, doesn't just say, I'm going to judge you for your legitimately bad behavior, but I'm going to stoop down and I'm going to lovingly, kindly draw you out. Draw you out. Part of what, the Lord, what makes the Lord so glorious is not just that he's high above the heavens and the earth, but despite the fact that he is more powerful than any politician, he's greater than the Grand Canyon, he's, he's higher than the heavens. Despite all of this, he humbles himself to care for the lowly. And this is, this is, this is great, because I think if you've lived any length of time, you've felt lowly. If you lived through 2020, you felt lowly. You felt alone. You felt lonely. You felt disconnected. You, some of you in, are in this room and you're, you're grappling with the sense of, of separation, of, of loneliness, of abandonment, of betrayal. Some of you are... are, are you're here and you can get no sense of perspective about life and it seems overwhelming like me at the, at, the, at the edge of a field looking out and seeing field, 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 field and you're looking out at your life and you're seeing obstacle, 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 obstacle up, and you're so low that you can't see with any level of perspective. Despite God's height, he does not fail to see the needs of the poor. It says he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts them from the ash heap. But he doesn't just say, okay, I'm gonna put you at square zero, right? I'm gonna take you from the negative and I'm just gonna put you at zero. No, he, he lifts them up. He makes them to sit with princes and with the princes of his people. That's, that's what salvation is. God doesn't just say, well, you know, I'm gonna give you a clean slate. You better not mess it up this time. No, but he says, I'm gonna give you a righteous right record. You're not only gonna just be considered, well, don't mess up this time, but he's gonna say, I'm, I'm gonna give you my son's record. Jesus who lived a perfect life, right? That's necessary. That's important. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross. It's that he lived an obedient life before he died on the cross. Is his passive and his active obedience that we now receive as, as credit to our account. He doesn't just take us from, from negative and put us at zero, but he puts us in the black. He exceeds their hopes and expectations. And if, if, you, if you struggle with this, if you struggle to connect with this, then I would ask you if you have reckoned and, and really wrestled with your own sinfulness. If this doesn't smack of, of mercy and grace, if this just doesn't impress you, it might be that you, you have not realized how bad you are. I say that as a person who is bad. The worst. Ask people close to me. The, the good news is never so good as when we understand how bad the bad news is. He takes the poor man and places him among princes. And then it says that he gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. You know, this part, uh, raising the, the poor from the dust, it's interesting that in, in 1 Samuel, which is a book written by a guy named Samuel, one of the 
most important prophets of the Old Testament. His origin story, Samuel, was that he had a mom named Hannah. And Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any kids. And she prayed and she asked God to give her children, asked God to bless her, but, but he, he didn't, he hadn't. And in fact, it's, it says that, that he had made it so that she couldn't have babies. Um, and this was not just a, oh, that's unfortunate, but, but motherhood was kind of the pinnacle of, of achievement for women in this moment, in this culture, in this time. So th- this was not just an unfortunate event, but this was an expression of God's curse and, and, and the, the, the lack of validation for who she was as a person. And so she, she prayed and she asked and she begged God, would you please? She went to the temple and, and the, the priest actually watches her as she's praying and weeping. But he, she's, she's not saying words out loud. She, the Bible says that she's singing in her heart, but her lips are moving, and he thinks that she is clearly drunk. He's like, lady, come on. You're drunk. What are you doing? And she's like, I'm not drunk. And she, she begins to lay out her concerns, lay out her, her pain, lay out her, her waiting, her longing, her desire. And he says, oh. He says, may God grant this to you. And, and she makes this promise. She says, God, if you will, if you will grant me a child, I will, I will devote this child to you. And she has Samuel, one of the greatest judges of, of Israel. Really, there's, there's nothing negative that's said about him in the word. He's, he's an amazing, read First and Second Samuel. He's awesome. And he's born out of this moment where God stoops down and hears the prayer of this woman. And what does it say? He gives Hannah, the barren woman, a home. That, that word there, it's not just that, well, I'm going to give you a nice place in Ashburn. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a single family home made by the Toll Brothers. You're going to love it. <laughs> no, the point is that a house becomes a home when there are little feet, right? It's a nice house that you and your spouse live in until there are little babies getting their dirty fingers all over everything. Then it's a home, like it or not. And it says, he gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. He takes unmet desires, brokenheartedness, a sense of inadequacy, and he brings life. He brings life. In the gospel, we see the ultimate expression of God's greatness being directed by his own goodness. I'll say that again. In the gospel, in the good news about Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate expression of God's greatness, his awesomeness, his power, his strength being directed by his own goodness. In Luke chapter four, Jesus begins his ministry and he, he begins it in Nazareth and one of the things that happens is that in uh, chapter four, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went to church on Sunday. Take note, please. It was, it was Saturday, but still. And he stood up to read. Different people would, would read different scrolls. They would read the scriptures. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, what? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So God, he comes and he says, I'm not a God who's far off. I'm not a God who's so transcendent he cannot interact with, with humanity. God is not, there was a movement uh, in the Enlightenment period of, called deism where it was kind of like, God is a, he's a really great watchmaker, right? Watches are pretty complicated, not, not digital, I mean digital watches are complicated, but, but like clockwork watches where you have gears and things and like different things to make it work. God's like that. And he created everything. He kind of wound it up and said, go. And then he just stepped away. But no, no, no. The gospel is that God who created all those things is intimately involved with his creation. And it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was transcendent. He was looking down at the heavens, looking down at the earth, looking down at creation because he was so high and exalted. And then what does it say in verse 14? And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He stoops down to pick up the poor. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. I mean, imagine this psalm, Psalm 113, imagine Jesus is sitting or reclining with his disciples. Passover night. He's about to be betrayed. And they're singing this. God is high above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. He gives the barren woman a home makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And they're looking at the Lord. And they, they don't even, the significance of this moment isn't, it's lost on them. They're looking at the Lord who has stooped down. And they're singing about what he's literally doing right then and there. I mean, thick with irony, right? If this was a theater, we'd all be chuckling. And he's about to be betrayed. He's about to give the greatest expression of his own humiliation so that the poor might be lifted up. Jesus came close so that we could know that God is not only great, but that he is also good. I'll say that again. Jesus came close. God didn't just, it wasn't just God in the anthill, but God came close to us so that we would know that not just that God is great, that he's mighty, that he's strong, and he's powerful, that he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, but that he is good to us, that he's loving toward us. And the psalm ends the same way it began. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Has this, has this reality hit you yet? Are you, are you still con- trying, are you struggling to connect with the greatness of God? It's okay if you are. I mean, it's okay in the sense that we're all human and we all do. It's not okay in the sense that we all owe God his glory and we fail to give it to him. But if, if you're struggling with it, I would, I would encourage you to go out today and just stare at the, at the sky and let your mind roam. Just stare at the sky. Just look at how big it is, how blue it is, how you can look over here and you can look over here 
and you, can, you can't see the end of the sky. Think about the amount of oxygen, the fact that there's oxygen that's weighed down by gravity. Just think about how dependent we are on all that's in the atmosphere. Just think about how, how tiny you are, how there are billions of other people like you who are also thinking their own individual thoughts and going about their own individual things how we're standing on a continent that's, that's got tectonic plates and it's shifting and there, there are earthquakes and there's weather and, and all of these things are happening and just here and God is just, he's sustaining it all. And, it, and he's not, you know, when I do math, you know, I have to write notes and like, okay, don't write this down, okay, take notes here. He, he's not struggling with the details. Like he, he knows how many hairs are on your head right now and he knows what Putin is planning to do next week. And he knows what three years from now is going to look like. And he knows what, what you know, thousand babies just got born. Like he knows all of that stuff at the same time. He knows about where every air molecule is and is going and was. I mean, just, just think about the amount of data that exists in all of, all of I mean, you got some data sciences. There, there are a lot of details that we can take into account, right? The more stuff that we know, the more stuff that we can keep track of, right? And God knows it all. That God who is so powerful, so mighty, so great, so awesome, so far above all, he is also the one who has shown us his love for you. I mean, how, how crazy is that? That God loves you. No offense. That God loves me. That God has any interest in me. I mean, I'm going to be dead in hopefully not too long. I mean, hopefully a while. <laughs> I'm going to be dead in a long period of time for me. But in the grand scheme of reality, it's just going to be a drop in the bucket. But God's interested in my life. He's interested in your life. He's not just mildly interested. He sends his son to redeem us. Not just to say, okay, well, let me, let me clear, clean, clean you off, get the, the ash off of you, but no, to say, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to put you a pl- in a place among princes. I'm going to take what was barren and, and there was no life, and I'm going to give you life. God is great and he is good. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your greatness. And I pray that you would help us to see it more clearly. I thank you for your goodness and I pray that you would help us to appreciate it more. And God, I pray that as we think about your greatness and your goodness, Lord, would you, would you draw our hearts to you? God, your love, your, your care, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.